hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. So we got the midweek episode today, and of course, well, you got me, Brandon. So um, I'm gonna do. I, I believe this is gonna be a two-parter, at least a two-parter. Um, it, it was one that I've wanted to do for a while, and then when I saw about his 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 death that he had passed, I decided that I, I waited long enough and it was time to talk about the Unabomber. So before we get into that, I do want to thank all the listeners for repeatedly listening and coming to coming here and listening to us talk, um, both me and Big D, um, on the midweeks and, you know, our, our normal episodes. Thank you all. Um, thank you all also for listening on, you know, wherever we can be found on NWCZ Radio um, and everybody else, um, Fringe Radio Network, all of those. Um, wherever you can find us, thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying it. Um, if you have suggestions, comments, anything like that, email us at down the rh at protonmail.com or you can send me a message at Mr. Underscore B underscore 666 on Instagram. And that's Mr. spelled out M I S T E R underscore B underscore 666. So Ted Kaczynski has been a, a fascination for me for a long time. Um, just what he was able to do and how he was able to accomplish it for such a long period of time. Um, years and years of terrorizing the the U.S. and everything with his bombs. And nobody had any clue who he was. Um, and as we get towards the end, we'll, we'll, we'll really you know talk about how he was caught and like i said i think this is going to be a two-parter because i think this first episode is going to be me talking about who he was as the unabomber as ted kaczynski the unabomber and then the next episode i think i'm going to spend an entire episode and we're just going to break down his manifesto because this is one thing that i want you to do if you have never read his manifesto sit down i mean it's 35 thousand words it's a long long manifesto but sit down and read it um and do something i did this with a couple people um and, and I, I listened to a few people talk about this that have done it with people and other stuff like that take the manifesto remove any mention on who it's from like the cover all of that stuff and hand it to someone and say read this and then tell me what you think and you might be surprised at the answers i will say this before i even go into next week's episode i do not in any way shape or form agree with what ted kaczynski did what he did the bombs any of that but he makes some valid points on the manifesto so and he makes he he almost not just nostradamus like makes some very interesting predictions of what the world and the future held and was pretty much, boop, right on the nose. So, and we will go through that, like I said, next week. I will, Actually, not next week, in two weeks when I have the midweek again. I will go through the manifesto. Because um, I never honestly really sat down. I knew of the Unabomber. I knew of all that stuff. I knew the basics. He sent some bombs. Boom, people blew up. A few people died. A lot of people were hurt. That's really the the extent of what I had knew, known about the Unabomber. I didn't even know where the name came from. Um, which we, uh, you know, I'll tell you right now. It's University and Airline Bomber. That's it. Because they named the case Unabomb. University and Airline Bomb. And then once they found out the name of the case, the, you know, 
news outlets started calling him the Unabomber. So it makes sense. Um, but just never thought about it. So it's one of those things I never really completely read through his manifest. Just thought he was some crazy dude that blew some people up. Now that I've gone through and done some research on him, and I'd done a little bit of research years ago, but just kind of touched the surface, just kind of dipped my toe in. Didn't really go deep into the pool on this one and deep in and really into his thoughts and everything like that into his manifesto. And like I said, next week is going to be uh, two weeks from now. It's going to be very interesting um, to talk about his manifesto and what what he thought and the things that he he imagined and like i said if you take away hand it if you want to do homework i never give you homework but i'm going to give you homework this time take that manifesto and if you've never read it read it and take out the idea that it's a unibomber that he blew people up just read it as if somebody just wrote this and said these are my thoughts on society and go from there and then also take it to somebody else and hand it to him and say hey Read this. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. Just read it and tell me what you think about it. And you might be surprised at their, their thoughts. So he really didn't like the left, by the way. So which I can't really argue with him on that one either. Um, so here we're, go, we're going to go into talk about Theodore Kaczynski. Um, we'll talk about his early life, who he was, like I said. And then next week we're going to go down his thoughts. And I'm going to mention a few of them as we go here. But next week we're going to really, or two weeks, we're going to really dive deep into the thoughts of Ted Kaczynski. So Theodore Kaczynski was born in Chicago in 1942 to a working class family of Polish ancestry, one of two children, him and his younger brother, David. Um, and David's going to have a huge part in this later in the episode. Um, but they had a very interesting relationship within the family and everything else. Uh, people who attended school with Ted noted that he was a loner who excelled academically. He was brilliant, brilliant. So he graduated early from Evergreen Park Community High School. He skipped 11th grade. He skipped 11th grade in 6th grade, I believe. Um, he was then accepted into Harvard on a full ride scholarship at the age of 16. 16 into Harvard. Um, hell, at 16, I, I was so drunk I didn't even know what school was. Well, at the Ivy League school, Kaczynski didn't make many friends, but he continued to perform exceedingly well in academic. Um, and it's very weird. I mean, he was very lonely. There's a lot of stories where you can... Um, I read a lot from his brother and people who knew him. Um, listened to a lot from interviews with um, his brother, him, and other people who knew him when he was younger. And he was very... A lot of people had a lot of tough time believing that he was the Unabomber and that he had the capability to not only hurt people but kill them. You know, there's a story that I, I heard in multiple places and read in multiple places where they talk about how his dad had caught a wild rabbit and all the kids were checking out and, you know, everything else. And when Ted saw it, he had a meltdown and started crying and screaming and like, oh my God, you're hurting it and everything like that. He was a very much into nature and all of that kind of stuff and a lot of people felt like he couldn't hurt anyone because he cared so much about nature um just not humans because they were screwing up nature so however it was during his time at harvard that kaczynski also participated in a controversial study led by psychologist henry murray henry murray um he would be i believe we brought him up 
um, in an earlier episode where we talked about this really crazy thing um, called MK Ultra. So Henry Murray was part of the OSS, um, later the CIA, um, was a psychologist involved in uh, MK Ultra and all of that. This believed that a lot of this stuff that he went through and these experiments he went through were early experiments, early parts of MK Ultra. But no def- definitive on that because there's no there's nothing on it. There's no paperwork on it. All everything's sealed and we can't see it and nobody knows exactly what was happened. But we have what uh Kaczynski told us and what Murray has said. So in the experiment, subjects were asked to write an essay on their personal philosophies and beliefs. Later, while they were hooked up to electrodes to measure their psychological response, the study study subjects were subjected to hours of insults and personal attacks. And those essays were the basis for that. Um, What they would do, pretty much everything that I could find, is that what they would do is they would have basically, it was trial lawyers and like really, really good trial lawyers come in and take and read these personal essays and everything from these students. He wasn't the only one, there was others. And then they would come in and take that information that they wrote from their personal philosophies and their beliefs and then they would pick them apart. And they would debate them and just insult them and pick them apart on their own beliefs and everything else, twist their words, do all those sorts of things, and just mentally and physically, not physically, but mentally and psychologically berate them for hours and hours. And they did this over time. Um, It's believed that Kaczynski participated in this experiment for more than 200 hours, lasting for three full years. And that his mental and emotional well-being suffered as a result of this. So, and that's a huge thing. And a lot of people, there's a lot of people that point to, I mean, we've talked about MKUltra, how they use this kind of thought process and theory and yelling and breaking people down and destroying them mentally and everything like that to bring them, you know, to a place where they could program them. So, and this is very, very indicative of things that they would do in MK Ultra. And this is something that Kaczynski says, and he said in multiple interviews, this had no effect on him at all. But many psychologists and other people have said this was probably a huge problem and breaking point for him mentally. Um, for somebody who was already having issue um, with his own mental, you know, well-being. So, but yep, he went through that for 200 hours, estimated 200 hours, and, you know, for over three years of doing this. So even though still with that, he graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in math, mathematics in 1962, he would later earn a master's in 1964 and his doctorate in 1967 in math from the University of Michigan. After completing his education at 25, Kaczynski became the youngest assistant professor in the history of the University of California at Berkeley when he was hired to teach undergraduate geometry and calculus in the fall of 1967, so which lasted two years, and then he resigned 
And they say without providing reason on most things that we found, but most people pretty much say that what he had said to anybody he talked to at that time was, I'm leaving because he never wanted to do this. He didn't want to be a part of society. Um, he hated society um, in many ways. Um, not just he hated our society. He hated the way we were doing things. He hated technology. So he left Berkeley, went back to live with his parents um, in Illinois for a couple years uh, before he finally moved to his cabin in Montana. There's a lot of things that happened during his time um, living with his parents um, for those two years. While living with his parents, he worked with his brother and his dad at a foam factory. Uh, at that time, he dated a woman. Kind of. They had a couple. I guess dated is kind of a, a, a an over-exaggeration, I think, of what really happened. He went on a few dates with a woman, had a little bit of romantic involvement with a woman, um, but it didn't, it didn't go well. Um, let's just put it that way. It did not go well at all. I think the hardest part is, is from what you hear from most people, he had problems really um, interacting with people and having normal human interactions. Uh, the date didn't go well. A lot of the dates didn't go well. Um, they broke up. He felt slighted. He decided he started writing poems on like paper and taping them to the walls in the bathroom and different places around the uh, factory. Um, of course, and they weren't nice poems. They were very dirty, very nasty poems um, about this co-worker who was a supervisor by the way um this this woman that was a supervisor and his brother who was his boss david um pretty much had warned him you need to stop or i'm gonna have to fire you well of course kaczynski like didn't believe that his brother would do it because this is one thing that will, will come into play very much later kaczynski very much believed that his only ally in life and the only person who understood him and the one person that would never, ever, 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 ever do something to hurt him or again go against him in any way that always had his back was his brother. And as someone who's the youngest of six with three brothers, that is never the case. Your brother is never the one that has your back. Your family is never the one that has your back, at least not the blood family. Um, in most cases, the people that have your back are the people who truly love you. In most cases, those are your friends um, and people that you choose. So, um, But in this case, his brother David was the only person that he thought you know, would never turn on him, You know, never thought he would do anything. Well... Um, he was wrong. His brother actually ended up finally, and it, I think it was one of those things it came down to, and Ted was very much like this very never thought his brother would do stuff, and his brother had to fire him. And when he fired him, that was one of the first times that he felt like his brother betrayed him. So he spent those two years, you know, moved, you know, once he earned enough money, he bought some property outside of Lincoln, Montana, and he moved there. So in 1971. So with very little money, Kaczynski hoped to live self-sufficiently by teaching himself survival skills such as hunting, organic farming. He also worked odd jobs in the area and received some fin financial support from his family. So by 1975, he had become disturbed by the encroachment of real estate and industrial development in the area around his home. So and then influenced, some people say this anyway, influenced by the writings of French Christian anarchist philosopher Jacques Ellul. 
Kaczynski began vandalizing construction sites in Lincoln area in an effort to sabotage development. This was the beginning. And there's a lot of this where he sabotaged not only just construction sites. There's a story that he says in one of his interviews where he talks about how he had his thinking place. That occasionally when he needed to think, he would go hiking through the woods to his thinking place and sit there and think. And one day he went to go hike and his thinking place was leveled and they were paving a road. Um, there's another stories where his neighbor had, um, a sawmill, basically they would cut down, you know, limber timber. So had a timber mill, they'd cut down timber and they'd process it on his property. So he had a bunch of saws, a bunch of equipment, very loud equipment. Um, and that was one of the biggest things that Ted hated was the sound of loud equipment and of technology and the, the society moving forward. Uh, so he sabotaged equipment, threw rocks into the, you know, in, into the saw, did a few other things. Um, no one ever really thought that it was him for that much. He was just a weird hermit that lived up on the woods. So, and he did that for a few things. Um, there's a lot of stories where you can like hear stories of people that, you know, lived out there in the same areas he did and some of the dealings that he had with them and stuff like that where people felt like he was a little off. But nobody ever really, it seems like, felt threatened. Um, there's ones where the, the, the local librarian talks about how she'd see Ted all the time. She would get him books. Because like I said, he was brilliant. I mean, brilliant. And he would go get books and read them. But the cabin that he built, too, was only like a 10 by 15. It's like it's pretty much the size of the room that I use to record in my house for the studio. Um, it's tiny. Just this tiny little thing. But that's what he used. So, yeah. Then, of course, things started going nuts. So, Kaczynski then began using mail bombs sent via the U.S. Postal Service. Or that he would sometimes just hand deliver. So, in a series of coordinated attacks that lasted for 17 years. 17 years that he went with nobody even having a thought of who this might be. Before he was caught, they never even were close. The FBI had no clue who he was, um, which is insane, which is where I'm actually going to switch a little bit where I'm getting my info from, and I'm actually going to go to the FBI's you know, and, and go off what they have on their, this is the FBI's way, website talking about the case. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to read some of it, you know, verbatim and then kind of throw my parts into here. So a lot of this is coming off the FBI.gov. So I'm looking at their case files um, and we will talk about a lot of it. Like I said, this episode is going to be more on just what he did as the Unabomber. Um, and then we will go from there. So... This is kind of what they say on it. How do you catch a twisted genius who aspires to be the perfect anonymous killer who builds untraceable bombs and delivers them to random targets, who leaves false clues to throw off authorities, who lives like a recluse in the mountains of Montana and tells no one of his secret crimes. This is the hard part where a lot of people don't think about this, where they're able to catch most criminals is because they say the wrong thing to the wrong person. They do the wrong thing and people, you know, people notice them. He lived in the woods by himself and talked to pretty much no one 
at all. So that was the huge challenge that the FBI faced um, and all the investigative partners that they had. They spent nearly two decades hunting down what they called the ultimate lone wolf bomber. So, and this was the man, like we said, that the world would eventually know as Theodore Kaczynski. He came to the attention of the FBI in 1978 with the explosion of his first primitive homemade bomb in a Chicago university. And then over seven, the next 17 year, years, he would mail or hand deliver a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that eventually killed three people and injured nearly two dozen more. Along the way, he sowed fear and panic, even threatening to blow up airlines in flight. So, and this is what's amazing. I mean, he was able to get by the with this for so long, you know, for so long because they had no idea who he was. Like, no idea who he was. So, here's kind of a, a timeline of the bombs. So, May 25th, 1978, a passerby found a package addressed and stamped in a parking lot at the University of Illinois, Chicago, in the Circle Campus. The package was returned to the person listed on the return address, Northwestern University Professor Buckley Christ, Jr. He did not recognize the package and called campus security. The package exploded upon opening and injured the security officer. So this was one that was quite interesting, and this is what he would do a lot, because he didn't care which side got blow up, blown up, where it was addressed from or addressed to. So he put it out there with posted, but I think if I remember right, on most of them, the postage wasn't enough. So usually it would be one of those things. Like he said, he didn't. it didn't fit. And this is one that I, they think he really kind of did on accident. Um, it didn't fit in the, the box. So he just basically, you know, wouldn't fit. So he left it in the parking lot, hoping that some good Samaritan would mail it for him. Which the good Samaritan, instead of mailing it, took it back to the where it was addressed from. To Buckley Christ. Um, yeah. May 9th, 1979. Graduate student at Northwestern University is injured when he opened a box that looked like a present. It had left in a room used by graduate students. He just left the box. So he went back to Northwestern again. Or sorry. Went to Northwestern this time. The first one was University of Illinois. Went to Northwestern and just left a box. In a room. Until someone saw it and decided they were going to open it. So, and then November 15th, 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. fills with smoke after a bomb detonates in the luggage compartment. The plane lands safely since the bomb did not work as intended. Several passengers suffer from smoke inhalation. So, and that's one too, that if you actually read a lot of the reports on that one, that if that one had worked as it was intended, it would have obliterated the plane. It would have been gone. Just blew it out of the sky. But it failed. So, June 10th, 1980, United Airlines President Percy Woods is injured when he opened a package holding a bomb encased in a book called Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. So, he actually sent a book this time with... The book was hollowed out and made into a bomb and sent it to the United Airlines president. October 8th, 1981, a bomb wrapped in brown paper and tied with string is discovered in the hallway of a building at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The bomb is safely detonated without causing injury. That was one that they found before it blew up. 
May 5, 1982, a bomb sent to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University injures his uh, the secretary and after she opened it is in the, the professor's office. July 2, 1982, a package bomb left in the break room of Corey Hall at the University of California, Berkeley, explodes and injures an engineering professor. May 15, 1985, another bomb at Corey Hall at the University of California, Berkeley, engineer, injures an engineering student. June 13, 1985, a suspicious package sent to Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington is safely detonated, but most of the forensics evidence was lost. So and this was one, I mean, in Washington State. So we've got, so far, Utah, Washington, uh, California, and Michigan. Multiple states and an airline. So... Uh, November 15th, 1985, a University of Mich Michigan psychology professor and his assistant are injured when they open a package containing a three-ring binder that had a bomb. The bomber included a letter asking the professor to review a student's master's thesis. December 11th, 1985, a bomb left in the parking lot of a Sacramento computer store kills the store's owner. So now we've got one that finally killed. Um... This is another one, and that's one of the things. As he goes, he gets better and better. And then kind of, you know, I guess better and better is kind of sounds bad, but that's technically the truth. He get The bombs get more sophisticated and better at doing what he wants them to do, and that is kill people. So February 20th, 1987, another bomb left in the parking lot of a Salt Lake City computer store. Severely injures the son of the store's owner. A store employee sees the man leave the bomb, and that witness helped a... Uh, sketch artist create the composite sketch now that's the famous one we've seen we've all seen him in the hoodie with the big aviator glasses that's the one that we've all seen is that sketch and that is the only time anybody even saw him and then he disappears from 1987 to 1993 there's nothing and then in 19, June 22nd, 1993, a geneticist at the University of California is injured after opening a package that exploded in his kitchen. Then June 24th, 1993, a prominent computer scientist from Yale University lost several fingers to a mild bomb. And then December 19th, 1994, an advertising executive is killed by a package bomb sent to his New Jersey home. That one's interesting because that's one that advertising executive was... Because the uh, ELM, ELM, yeah, the Earth Liberation Movement or whatever they are, they had said that um, the advertising company was helping to protect Exxon and bring back their image when they, at that point a, a lot of resources showed that they were not. So he was falsely basically targeted because ELM had pointed him in there pointed ted in that direction not on purpose i don't think they purposely said ted go blow that fucker up i think it was just you know it, it kind of happened um he was part of that because i mean a lot of the stuff is we'll talk about too especially once we start talking about his manifesto next week he was very much into making sure that you know helping the environment and all of that stuff the environment and the you know Technology he hates, which if you pay attention to a lot of people that he bombs, psychiatrists did not like psychiatrists. Um, science 
professors, uh, computer salesmen, all those kind of things. And then April 24th, 1995, the last one, a mail bomb, mailed bomb kills the president of the California Forestry Association in his Sacramento office. So it's kind of one of those things. I mean, if you l- listen to all those bombs, I mean, he, he, that's a lot of bombs. A lot of bombs, a lot of injuries, and three deaths. So unfortunately, three deaths. Um, so after they go through all that, the bombs, and, and I think at the, the end, I will talk about a little bit of his victims and exactly what happened. I just did a quick overview of the bombs he did. Um, yeah. So basically as they went through the, like I said, 78 was that first one. And then he's tried to blow up a plane in flight in 79 FBI led task force that included the ATF and uh, US Postal Inspection Service was formed to investigate the Unabom UNABOM case codename for the university and airline bo- bombing uh, targets that were involved the task force would grow to more than 150 full-time investigators analysts and others in search of clues the team made every possible forensic examination of recovered bomb components and studied the lives of victims in minute detail these efforts proved um, little use in identifying the bomber who took pains to leave no forensic evidence. Building his bombs essentially from scrap materials available almost anywhere, and the victims' investigators later learned were chosen randomly from library research. So he went through, and a lot of the stuff he made was very much stuff that he, you know, you could get anywhere. Uh, nails that you could find anywhere, you know batteries that were you know stripped of their labels so you couldn't even get you know what serial numbers um he even at one point on one of his bombs took a bunch of hairs and stuff that he found in a public bathroom and put them into the bomb to try and you know get investigators off his trail um to do everything he could to not put them on his trail one of the um, just how devious his brain was you know you see the pictures of him all unkept and looks like you know he's a, a wild man living out in the woods what he would do when he would leave because he would make sure he never mailed anything from montana he always mailed it from somewhere else or he went there and delivered it in person when he would leave for those times he would shave he would clean himself up he would make sure he did not look all disheveled and messed up and then he would fly down there do what he needed to do and then he would come home go back hide in his cabin for two weeks and then not make sure to make sure not to come out to where he could be seen until he was shaggy and unkempt again so that's all anyone ever known so if anyone saw him out there they weren't like hey there's this crazy homeless looking guy roping and roaming around they would they just saw a, a clean cut individual going to do it um just like the one picture i mean the picture that we see of him he's not all shaggy and everything like you would think so it's that's one of the things i mean he was so much into making himself even his appearance different so yeah it's quite interesting and if you go through like some of his his mental well-being and stuff like that there's a lot of questions on his mental well-being and all that and uh whether or not he was insane uh, sociopathic um, schizophrenic there's a lot of different you know mental diagnoses that get thrown around but he was never officially diagnosed as any of those by anybody so which is quite interesting 
So they felt very confident that the Unabomber had been raised in Chicago and later lived in the Salt Lake City uh, and San Francisco areas. Kind of turned out to be true. They say that in the FBI thing, but most of the things you find, they had no freaking clue. Most of the things they thought that he was like an airline worker that lived in, in California. So, like I said, I'm looking at their website and every other thing that I've seen says, no, they weren't thinking that. There was, they had like the behavioral analyst unit that said, hey, we think that he's well-educated, blah, blah, blah. He may even be a university professor, blah, 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 all this stuff that was really damn close. And the FBI is like, no, that's bullshit. So, so yeah, quite interesting. So, the occupation that they had proved elusive. So, there's theories ranging from aircraft mechanic, like I said, to scientist. Uh, they weren't even sure on his gender. Um, although investigators believe the bomb was most likely male. Um, they did investigate several female suspects. There's a weird thing, too, at some point um, that I, I read in multiple places and 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 listen and had a couple other people found this in multiple places that I was listening to and reading on that talked about it. at one point he actually talked about getting a, a sex change and then at the last minute decided not to so at some point he thought he might want to be a woman so who there, there's some weird mental things going on here um so that was kind of, you know, a, a quick overview of that stuff, what the FBI thought. So their big break, break in the case came in 1995. So this is where he makes a mistake. And this is one of those things, never, never write a manifesto. Um, especially if you're blowing things up. Or if you write it, dictate it to someone else, let them write it. Um, <laughs> he sent a 35,000 word essay claiming to explain his motives and views of the ills of modern society. So after a lot of debate about the wisdom of giving in to terrorists, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno, there's that crazy broad again, approved the task force uh, recommendation to a published essay in hopes that a reader could identify the author. This is one of the things that they're not saying here too. What he said when he sent the manifesto was, hey, if you publish this, I'll stop blowing people up. But if you don't, the next bomb's on its way. So there was a lot of that. Kind of like he had them. He knew that they had no clue who he was or anything like that. So they decided that they were going to post it. Or, you know, not post it because that's what you do now. But back then in 95, amazing for you youngins, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have all that. We Our phones were phones. Um, so they put it in the paper. The Washington Post is where they, they put their manifesto. Um, it was in the Washington Post. And once they put it in there, what they were hoping was that someone would read it and say, you know, that sounds a lot like so-and-so. So, so after it appeared, thousands of people suggested possible suspects. One stood out, though. So David Kaczynski came out, who's, once again, there we are, we're talking brother. His brother, who would never betray him bullshit david kaczynski described his troubled brother ted who had grown up in chicago taught at the university of california at berkeley where two of the bombs had been placed then lived for a time in salt lake city before settling permanently into the primitive 10 foot by 14 foot cabin that the brothers had constructed near lincoln montana so and there's more to it than that what really happened with david um especially i mean at least according to his words it was his wife who a lot of people don't realize this too there was a huge rift in the family like ted did not want anything to do with people anything to do with his family um 
He basically uh, never didn't even show up to his father's like funeral. He would called his mom at the funeral and just said, "Sorry about your luck," um, and that was really it. And then he would basically tell him too, "If you write me a letter, um, you have to make sure anytime you write me a letter, put a line underneath the the." stamp and that's going to tell me it's an emergency and then i'll open it and read it if you don't if it's not an emergency don't put the line if you put the line and it's not an emergency i will never talk to you again so he didn't want anything to do with him so that's what a lot, a lot of people don't realize too he wasn't just a hermit living up there by himself he wanted nothing to do with his family he wanted nothing to do with anything else the other thing is where a lot of people talk about how he was way way out there in the mountains all alone like thousands of miles away from people no he was six miles from lincoln six miles He'd ride his bike into Lincoln and never had a car from everything I could find. I never saw that he ever drove a car. I ever had a license. He, he rode his bicycle. Um, he'd ride his bicycle into town and take the bus. So he wasn't that far out. I mean, it was six miles. And I mean, Lincoln was only a town of like 500 people, but it was still a town. They had a library. They had all that. I mean, he was six miles away from town. You know, from everything that I, I've seen and some of the stuff, you could hear the, the highway from his house. So... Um, maybe when he first moved there in 71, there may not have been the highway and stuff like that, but he was still not that far outside of Lincoln. So, um, David also, so once he, he, his wife read it and his wife had never met Ted Kaczynski. Um, she'd only, you know, heard about him and read the letters that Ted had sent to David because every once in a while, you know, for years he would send a letter just ranting about how, you know, society and how stupid everyone was and how technology is destroying us all. I um, mean, she'd read some of those and she read the manifesto and she's like, David, you need to read this. Um, it, it sounds a lot like your brother. And of course, David supposedly and this is what he says but who knows he says he didn't believe it he's like there's no way i never thought ted would never hurt anybody this isn't ted there's no way and then he sat down and read it and went oh shit this is my brother um and he read it found a bunch of things and it's one of those things like i said i think i'm going to really go into it next next uh, episode um my next midweek and really into it, some of the things that they found that made them believe that this was Tad Kaczynski, that the, it was the same person who'd written both the letters and the manifesto. There was a lot of words that he used that were, you know, nobody else does. Um, like one of the big ones is, is you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's what most of us would say. But what makes more sense and is more logical, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And that's the way Ted would write it. And that's how it's written in both of his letters and the manifesto. There's a couple other ones with spelling. Um, he would spell things with the English spelling, not the American spelling. Which for some of you that may not know this, the English do spell things different than we do. Um, just because we speak the same language doesn't mean we use it the same way. So he read the letters, compared them, even got a uh, private eye to go over the letters with him. The private eye went over the letters and said that this linguistically, this is the same person. Um, whoever wrote the manifesto is also the same person who wrote these letters. Um, so there was really, there was really no denying, denying it. So uh, David provided those letters and documents to the, you know, FBI on the stuff he's written. Um, their linguistic analysis determined that the author of the papers and the manifesto were one and the same. 
And then they combine it with the facts, you know, from the bombings, Kaczynski's life, his other letters and stuff that he'd written to two papers in the past of him ranting about, you know, how much society was doomed. Um, they pretty much determined that we think this is the guy. So um, one of the big things here, too, um, once again, never trust family, never trust the FBI. The FBI totally screws David in this one because one of David's biggest things was I don't want Ted to know that this was me. Please don't let him know that I did this, that I was the one that, you know, that pushed, that, that gave you the evidence to get to him. Um, and the FBI is like, okay, sure, yeah, that we will make sure that doesn't happen. We'll also make sure he doesn't get the death penalty. And then pretty much first thing they did was said, hey, by the way, we found out from his brother. And yeah, let's go for the death penalty. So completely lied to him completely. And of course, they don't put that in their little notes here. But that's things that I found from his paperwork and other people have witnesses has said that happened. Even FBI agents said, yes, we told him that this wouldn't happen. And then, well, he did it. He we did it anyway. Um, and, and that's what's amazing is just, you know, they made a deal. And I mean, it wasn't like, by the time they arrested him, it wasn't even, you know, the, the first thing says, yes, he was arrested. They found the Unabomber because his brother gave him the evidence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, never trust family, never trust the FBI. Um, they will, in the end, every time. On April 3rd, 1996, investigators arrested Kaczynski and combed through his cabin. It's very interesting the way they did it, too. There was, there was like, I think it was 17 days or something like that, um, where they basically staked out Lincoln, waiting to see, trying to get him, because they didn't want him in the cabin when they arrested him, of course. Because if you arrest him while he's in the cabin, he may have a way to trigger, blow the place up, do all this crazy stuff. Um, you never know. So they wanted to try and get him out of the cabin and away from there. So they used uh, a ruse. They had one of the FBI agents and... Um, might have been two of the FBI agents. It depends on which article I was reading on wh how if it was one guy or two with him. Um, and a park ranger. And the park ranger who knew Ted, basically they had like an argument. seemed like the park ranger and the FBI agent um, were having an argument over where the boundaries of the property line were. So they went up and knocked on things saying, hey, Ted, we're trying to figure out where the boundaries are. I think they're over here. This guy thinks they're here. Blah, blah, blah. You own. It's your property. Can you come out and help us? He stepped out. When he stepped out to talk to him, they ended up grabbing him and arresting him. Um, and really at that point, too, the, the hard part was they had a warrant to search the premises, not necessarily to arrest him yet. So they basically you know, were able to pull him out, go in and, and, and search. In their search, they found everything they needed. So um, investigators arrested him on April 3rd. And combed the cabin. There they found a wealth of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb making experiments and descriptions of Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb that was underneath his bed ready for mailing. And that's one too, the one that was under his bed. There's two things that they think. They think either it was ready to be mailed or it was there hoping that some over eager FBI agent would grab it, touch it, try opening it, do something to make it blow and just wreck. It. I mean, if it had blown, it would have got rid of every piece of evidence in that, in that room. I mean, it was only 10 by 14, uh, the shed basically that he lived in. I have a shed outside that I store stuff in outside of my house. It's just almost that same size. So 
and at that point, Kaczynski's reign of terror was over, and his new home was the a supermax prison in Colorado. So, and that's pretty much how they caught him. They caught him. They went to court. Um, this is a crazy thing. When they went to court, too, um, his attorneys wanted him to plead guilty. Like, just plead guilty. Just just go with it. Plead guilty. You did it. We know you did it. You're insane. Um, and it, it just, it did it. He wanted to do it. He was so against pleading guilty that he finally just, so people wouldn't think and they couldn't come up and tell people that he was crazy. He pretty much just admitted to it all. He confessed. So, and yeah, like I said, uh, he was indicted on federal grand jury on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, three counts of murder. Um, and like I said, his attorneys wanted him to plead insanity, and Kaczynski refused and pled guilty to all charges. So then incarcerated in, with no chance of parole at the Supermax Security Prison in Florence, Colorado. So, yeah. And then in 2021, Kaczynski was transferred to the Federal Prison Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina. On the early morning of June 10, 2023, the 81-year-old Kaczynski was found unresponsive in his cell and pronounced dead. So, 11 days ago. And like I said, this was one that I had thought about. This is one I've thought about for a long time wanting to do because it's, it's, it's fascinating. Some of the crazy things um, that he did and everything else. Um, his manifesto, like I said, we'll talk about, has a lot of ideas about how, um, the technology is killing us. He calls it, um, technology in an industrialized society effectively destroys human freedom because it needs to regulate human behavior closely in order to function. Hmm. Sound like anything that we have, maybe Facebook, all of the stuff that we have, our phones, everything. And it's insane when you listen to the, to the manifesto. And like I said, we'll really go down deep into that later of how much what he said really came true. Um, he did, while in prison, uh, publish two books. Technological Slavery, slavery, The Collected Writings of Theodore J. Kaczynski, a.k.a. The Unabomber, and Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How, both of which expand on the ideas included in his original manifesto. Um, he's, I mean, and, and I hate to say this, because it's one of those things you don't want to be like, yeah, the Unabomber, what a freaking brilliant guy. But he was, I mean, by all intents and purposes, he was um, brilliant and everything else. And the manifesto, it makes sense on certain things. And like I said, we'll really go into that on, you know, in two weeks when I come back. So one thing is too, um, a lot of people said there's no direct correlation made between experiments that he had and later violence. Um, although it's not, the widely held view that experiments like Murray's are unethical and may cause harm to those who participate in them. There's no direct correlation between Kaczynski's involvement in the study and his actions later in life as Unabomber. So I think it's reasonable to identify this episode as approximately the time around which Kaczynski's life began to unravel. But this might be coincidental. Many people say... Um, it's a gentleman named Barber that points out that Kaczynski was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he wasn't. 
one doctor who saw him for one visit said that he was schizophrenia. But if you really look at a lot of things and look at, you know, what the definition of schizophrenia, um, it takes two, it take, there's a lot to it. You can't just look at someone and say, that fucker's crazy. He has schizophrenia. And that's kind of what happened there. It was like one doctor met him once in the hospital or in when he was in jail to see if he was able to stand trial. And that doctor said that he was schizophrenic. But there was not a real true diagnosis of it. So, um, the Harvard experiment was stressful and stress aggravates the symptoms of schizophrenia. Otherwise, it would be a mistake to exaggerate uh, the importance of this experience or to see if it has a major determinant of his anti-science and anti-technological, technology, political views. It was just one more personal grudge that he could fit into a paranoid narrative, narrative about how the world worked in general and for him in particular. Um, I don't completely agree with that. I think he, yeah, he, I think he did more. I think there was a lot more. Um, and the one thing is too, a lot of people don't think about this. He was, uh, like we said, after investigators discovered in 1996, the former youthful genius became a reclusive murderer responsible for a horrific series of bombings that killed three people in June of 23. They took an interest in the three-year experiments that Kaczynski later described as the worst experience of his life. Kaczynski entered Harvard in 1958 and one year later was tapped by psychologist Henry A. Murray to take part in a study exploring the effects of stress on the human psyche, a popular area of research during the Cold War. The experiment enlisted 22 Harvard students who wrote um, detailed essays in which they summarized their worldview and personal philosophy. Then the harsh experiments began. After submitting their essays, each of the students was seated in front of bright lights, wired electrodes, and subjected to what Murray himself described as vehement, sweeping, and personal abuse. Interrogations and during which members of his research team would attack the students' subjects' ideals and beliefs as gleaned from their essays. The goal was to assess the value of interrogation techniques used by law enforcement and national security agents in the field. So they were basically flat out just like interrogating. This was advanced interrogation techniques. So, and many people believe uh, it's clearly unethical and violates all the main ethical principles of psychologists as promulgated by the American Psychological Association. Um, subjects were incompletely informed about the nature of the experiment and were tricked or coerced in remaining in the experiment, given that the procedures were designed to break enemy agents and render them so damaged that they would be operationally useless it is reasonable to expect that they would have the same consequences for vulnerable young people who do not have specialized training to resist interrogation. And the one thing you got to figure out too here um, is we're talking about Ted Kaczynski, who was a loner, who already had psychological issues because of things that he dealt with in school or, you know, as a child growing up. Murray still considered as an important researcher and clinician in the field of psychology, and his personality assessments remain a fundamental part of psychological evaluations to this day. However, his legacy, because he passed away in 88, had been, has been tarnished somewhat by this study in which Kaczynski was one of the subjects. In fact, the study drew a lot of negative attention in the aftermath of the Unabomber's arrest as details of his early life emerged. So, um, yeah. There are some people that say Kaczynski killed himself, but he tried he tried suicide 
when he was in uh, on trial too. So it's very interesting. Um, some of the things that they say. Uh, one of the big things that um, a lot of people say, in all reality, um, that attributed to a lot of this was the fact that Kaczynski resented his parents for not letting him have a childhood um, in a lot of ways by jumping him grades because he was so smart he skipped two grades so he felt that he had social impact because of that which I could understand in some ways I mean I had the opposite I was pissed at my parents because they didn't let me skip a grade um, I wasn't allowed to skip a grade because if I did I would have ended up in the same grade as my brother, who was two years older than me. And they felt that that would have been negative to his social standing. So, quite interesting sometimes how parents do things. So, yes, so he was, he skipped a couple grades. His parents always expected him to be better, do better. Um, there's a lot of reports about his dad being, you know, mentally abusive, basically constantly telling him and trying to get him to be better and better and whatever he did was never good enough i know how that feels um and that's one of the things i mean i think this is one honestly out of all the ones that i've really researched and gone down um besides the fact that he killed people and blew people up i feel in many ways i i can understand some of some of what you know he went through in many ways because that's kind of how, you know, when I was younger, I always had to be better. I was never good enough. Nothing I ever did was enough because, you know, I was supposed to be smarter and better and everything else like that. So I was always pushed to do better. And that's kind of the thing with Kaczynski is I think the same thing. He feels the same way that he was pushed to be better. There's a lot of stories like he was big into playing the trombone um, in high school. He loved band. And then, you know, but he felt that he, he even, I think, felt that he was too young to go to Harvard. But his dad was like, no, this is your chance. You have to do this. You are better. You're blah, 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 and pushed him. Um, not that it makes it any better, anything he did later in life. I mean, what he did, killing so many people, um, the route that he took to try and get his thoughts and beliefs and how he thought it was correct to do what he did, completely wrong. Totally wrong. Never should have happened. Never should have killed people. He, I don't think schizophrenia is the right diagnosis. I think sociopathy is the right diagnosis from most of the things I can see and most of the things I read. No real emotion towards other people. No feeling of anything to the death of people as long as it met to what he felt should be happening and that's kind of what happened there he thought that we should be more like the amish and have less technology and that technology was ruining us and that's one thing that i will talk about when i talk about his manifesto how he felt that we were so reliant on technology that it is ruining us as a society that we are being ruined as people that society is being taken over by the technology that we are dominated by the technology and everything else and that we were better off before that in the you know the the times before technology that the amish had it right take a little bit of technology that helps them a little bit and the rest of it boot it get rid of it so and like i said we'll go more into that later like i said nothing he did was correct he was brilliant with numbers and everything else but i think his brilliance and his intelligence is what pushed him to do things that he shouldn't have done um, to blow people up to kill people and to do that to try and get a point across 
that we needed to less science, less genetics, less technology. Very interesting one. Like I said, I, I, I've been fascinated by his story for years. Um, and it was very interesting to go down and figure out kind of how it went. Definitely look more into this. There's more to it than this. But I knew it was going to take me almost an hour just to talk about his bombs and talk about some of that stuff. Next time, when I come back and do my next midweek, I will talk about his manifesto and how and what his thoughts were. And how in some ways he was very, he had some valid points. Not the whole thing. There's some points where you're like, oh, okay, buddy. No, 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 that's a little much. But other things where he really did have valid points. And he did in many ways. I mean, I don't want to say predict the future, but he, he saw where we were heading and what was going to happen in the future. Um, yeah. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, comments, anything like that, something you feel like I missed, something I should talk about, something you think I should bring up at the, you know, when I talk about his manifesto, um, your thoughts on it, let me know. Um, and with that, thank you. And we'll talk to you later.